0: Again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host, and I'm the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut. Which provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state of Connecticut to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. And every employee, regardless of position, plays a key role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the Connecticut Certification Board, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. In the landmark publication, Facing Addiction in America, the Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health, which came out in 2016, it is clearly stated that effective prevention programs and policies exist, and if implemented well, can markedly reduce substance misuse and related threats to the health of the population. That simple line elicits a question that the field often takes for granted but does not fully understand. What does well implemented mean? As I thought more about that in preparation for my guests today, I also believe that more professionals in the field do not actually have a solid grasp of what those in the prevention space actually do. And I think it's time that we clarify that for all. Our guests today can help us with both. Sandra Del Sesto is an advanced certified prevention specialist and was a consultant and master trainer in prevention and theory and practice. She was the founder and for 30 years, the executive director of Initiatives for Human Development, a Rhode Island statewide multi-service prevention program and the founder of CODAC, the Ocean State's largest nonprofit treatment program. She was also the founding director of the Institute for Addiction Recovery at Rhode Island College. And for over 35 years, Ms. Del Sesto has provided Community and strategic planning, program development, and capacity building training in all areas of prevention practice throughout the United States. She is a member of the advisory boards of the New England Prevention Techno- Technology Transfer Center, the Nas- National Latino PTTC, the PTTC National Coordinating Office, and the New England School of Addiction Studies. Sandra is the former, pre- former prevention co chair of the ICNRC, and she's co author. Of the SAMHSA CAPS substance abuse prevention Prevention specialist training, I'm having a great day. (laughs) Prevention specialist training and its basic and advanced prevention ethics courses, as well as many other face to face and online courses. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Boston College and her master's degree in counselor education from Rhode Island College. Scott Gagnon is a Certified Prevention Specialist, Associate Director of ADCARE Educational Institute of Maine, Incorporated, and Director of the New England Prevention Technology Transfer Center. Appointed by the Maine Speaker of the House, Scott serves as the public health representative on Maine's Marijuana Advisory Commission. He is the co-chair of the National PTTC Network's Cannabis Prevention Workgroup. Scott was co-chair of the Prevention Task Force for the Maine Opiate Collaborative and has served on the SAMHSA Center for Substance Abuse Prevention National Advisory Council. He speaks and trains nationally on cannabis science, prevention, and policy, as well as on workforce development and other prevention topics, including at the CADCA National Leadership Forum, CADCA Mid-Year Training Institute, and the National Prevention Network Conference. Scott's work has been recognized with awards from multiple organizations, including the Maine Alliance to Prevent Substance Abuse, Healthy Androscoggin, and the Maine Public Health Association. In 2017, Scott was the recipient of the Patrick J. Kennedy Outstanding Advocate award from smart approaches to marijuana who you guys make it tough to get through that <laughs> i'm proud to welcome two of my new england colleagues and subject matter experts to the program thank you both for joining me today
1: great to be here with you
2: I'm Honored to be here
0: i'd like to start by addressing a really commonly misheld uh perception about prevention that prevention efforts are only for schools and youth uh, can you give our listeners the truth about that?
2: Actually, um, most of the prevention work is done right now in primary prevention at the community level. So most states, um, including all of us in New England have a structure of coalitions. Mm-hmm. And those coalitions use uh, what we call the strategic prevention framework, which is really applying strategic planning to Prevention work in the community. So it's really a lifespan issue. Um, Working with youth both in and out of school is part of that. Um, Initially, um, the task forces are required to do a comprehensive needs assessment and identify the priority needs in their community. And that those priority needs might be a particular substance that um, is being used and a particular focus population. And we can drill down. Not only by age, but by gender, by um, race and ethnicity. So it's a, uh, it's a uh, the state does determine um, the priorities um, in terms of uh, which substance is being um, most abused. And my state, for example, it's uh, uh, middle school youth with um, uh, marijuana use and uh, underage drinking, and of course the opioid. Uh, misuse uh, focusing actually on eighteen to twenty five. but those every state may have a different priority, and then within the state that they would drill down further in terms of which youth and where, and then looking at the particular risk and protective factors for their community. Scott, you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, and I think um... You know in prevention one of the things we kind of look at is a socio-ecological model um, knowing that there's different parts of the community we need to work with and i can use the example that i'm familiar with and uh sandra mentioned uh, marijuana prevention and so when we're approaching marijuana prevention in a community we know it's not just we can't just focus on the schools and youth there's lots of different you know partners that we need at the table so that includes working with employers and working with public transportation, working with colleges. Um, you know, so there's lots of different community sectors we need to engage. If we put all our eggs in one basket, and you know, we're gonna miss other important pieces that also have influence on how successful we can be approaching uh, you know, cancer prevention in youth. So, I mean, if employers have strong programs for, for employees and you know, that can support parents who may or may not run into issues, which will affect you know the, the, the kids and the family. so so definitely it's I mean youth and, and schools are super important, but we have to and as prevention as we know, we can't just focus on that. We need to focus on all kind of corners of the community to have that you know breadth uh, of, of, of approach on the, on the issues. In the
0: community I said, that I live in in Connecticut, there's a very active coalition called Best for Bristol and um i sit on the mayor's opioid task force so i we get a lot of information and some of the things that i see they're very out public uh and doing things that people see that don't address youth. they have you know tape recordings that play on those radio stations at gas stations um billboards they're actively they're there at every community function getting out information things so i see they're very active and most recently they've been very active about They have been focused on uh, schools and youth with vaping because that has just skyrocketed, but it's not the only thing they do.
2: Yeah, and again, that's a priority that's probably been set by our needs assessment. Um, In addition, something that Scott said, and you mentioned coalitions, um, we encouraged um, coalitions to include what we call at least the 12 sectors um, and that um, the drug-free communities uh, project Um, guides people around that. And so those 12 sectors include treatment, include recovery, businesses, um, the faith community, the schools, and so, and especially, and it has to and should include members of the focus population. So those people most affected by the priority problem in the community. So there's all different lenses um, in terms of how everyone's seeing the problem through their particular lens and how it impacts um, their sector of the community. And so they take on different aspects of the solution. And then the other piece is, is that, you know, we encourage, that's probably not strong enough word, um, that uh, they look at the coalitions, look at evidence-based practice, uh, uh, interventions that are based on research. Not just good feelings or you know intuition or whatever. it has to be based based in some kind of fact. And there's lots of data out now. That's why we we are very data driven yeah. in this field. Um, and so we have to go back to the research and defend any intervention that we do and how it would uh, impact the problem. I mean, because again, we've got to be measurable uh in terms of making change
0: there's a couple things that you would that you both addressed that were really on my list of questions so i'm going to jump around um, because i i want to get to them while while we're talking about them one of the things that you just mentioned sandra is about research Um, there is a significant amount and that's an understatement there's a significant amount of research and data um in the prevention space but to paraphrase paraphrase one of my public health heroes dr leanna Wen, who i find to be absolutely brilliant in the public health space data provide context and credibility but it's stories that compel action or as a former u.s senator uh from maryland barbara Mikulski said data validate they don't motivate does the field of prevention need to improve its storytelling to keep people involved because the data is clearly there. How are is the prevention space on the other end of getting people motivated and telling their story, telling your story?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question and um, that's actually something we try to do uh, through our PTTC training and actually it's funny this is something that uh, Sandra and I were just working on a prevention domain video series where we walk through the six prevention domains of the ICNRC certification and when we talk about data, in communication we talk about the need to really pair those together that it's not just a matter of throwing a bunch of numbers at, at people it's like how do we how do we tell stories with that data and sometimes that means maybe providing in some anecdotes or whatever to illustrate um, the story that we're trying to uh, tell with the data so that's that's certainly um, so while we need to be evidence-based we also need to I mean I think this is where there's kind of a science and a little bit of an art to prevention. And I think kind of mastering that is is something that we try to to uh, stress through our training, and I know others uh, as well as how to be able to tell that story. And it's not just the community; I mean, you need to be able to tell those stories to funders. Um, I think as a field, you know, we can always improve how we tell that story to the people that provide funding, like lawmakers who uh, you know pass laws to uh, to approve funding. Um, so, so I, I think it's something we do a good job with, but I think it's something we can definitely always improve and, um, you know, reinforce uh, in our field. And I
2: think the story for me doesn't make any sense unless it is, it's illustrating what we know in the research. So uh, because it's very important that we um, base what we do on some kind of evidence of, of change. And, you know, we go back um, in quite a ways back now, maybe a generation to the tobacco, success that we had um, in terms of changing community norms. I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I would never have believed that it would change. There were ashtrays in my parents' living room. People smoked in public buildings. I mean, it was just a, a, different, um, a different culture and we've changed that. So we learned from tobacco, but the, but the stories uh, now need to connect with what we know and the evidence about cannabis about opioids about um even any other behavioral health issues so but just telling the story without be, you know referring it and connecting it with the research um it, it to me is just a feel good thing and it it needs to be um connected to the thought you know the um, what we what we know to be true
0: you just hit on something it's, that i've noticed and, and that is <clears throat> excuse me and that is a struggle for me on the the treatment and recovery side. The treatment and recovery side is very, very good at putting a face on recovery and storytelling, but tying that story into things that work, into data, into evidence-based practices, we're not that good at. As a matter of fact, yeah. we're terrible at it for my, my uh, uh colleagues on the recovery we know that simple stories as compelling as they may be don't motivate on their own there has to be something at the end and recovery is possible treatment works uh isn't enough no uh, there no. needs to be more and you're right about smoking i'm a big fan of uh of film noir and a lot of the movies from the 40s that i see i'm surprised the kids <laughs> aren't smoking I mean, it's just one after another. Everybody is smoking. Uh, Casablanca, you they walk into Rick's bar and all you see is like a nuclear cloud right. <laughs> over right.
2: the ceiling. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and the the funny thing I know, and I know you had a question about this, it ties into another question, but I think this is one of the long term successes we've seen. And so that that change didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of work that went into that. And some of it was public facing, whether it's posters or presentations and trainings, but there's a lot of behind the scenes work that happened through policy making. you know, indoor smoking laws and, and those kind of things that in totality got us uh, where we are. So it wasn't anyone. And that's the important thing around prevention. It's not one thing. It's not right. like treatment. It's not, there's not like one program or one thing that you're going to go through uh, to get on the other side. It's a confluence of programs, policies, champions, you know, engaging all 12 sectors. It's really, it's really, uh, I mean, to, to quote, something they use in lawmaking, the sausage making of putting it all together. And that, that's, that's one of the things I think folks maybe don't appreciate enough about prevention professionals. They have to do a little bit of everything. It's not just running one program. It's like, I need to understand how to do policy. I need to understand how to engage community sectors and put this all together or backed by data to really have this all hands on deck approach that gets us to where we want to get. It does require a little bit of patience on the part of our field and our funders, (laughs) Uh, but uh, we can get there. And the smoking changes is a good example.
0: You know, we talk about how, when we look at the field, the industry as a whole, uh, for substance use disorders, prevention, treatment, and recovery field, the three aspects, like you said, are very, very siloed. Um, How can we help those both in the treatment and recovery arenas understand the importance of prevention um, and like I said earlier in the intro I don't think that that many professionals have a good grasp of it and you've cleared it up quite a bit um, how do we help people understand the importance of it
2: well I think you know this is a big issue for me since I've worked across the the, um, the sectors and cross training is really important um I also think that way back when I first started, Um, Not only did they do treatment for the individual in a treatment program, but they had programs for the family members. It's not paid for, but that's something that it's a prevention um, intervention that could be integrated into a treatment program um, as what we call a selected or indicated intervention. Um, So that's um, really important. But as far as recovery, there's a huge overlap. I do a training on um, the intersection of prevention and recovery. Um, in fact, w- one of the co-authors of the training with me was um, Jeff uh, Jim Wolfing from Connecticut.
0: Hello, Jim Wolf yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, right, and um, Steve Gumley from Rhode Island, uh, both in recovery themselves. Um, but when you think of the activities that go on in a recovery center, such as uh, drug-free activities, parenting programs, um, life skills training, Uh, all of those policy change, working on policy, those are all things we do in prevention. So we have what we call a continual care, which is sort of 180 degrees. And when I train, I talk about it being really 360, because there's a huge overlap. Um, So the recovery community being involved with um, prevention work at the community level and vice versa, Um, is really important. Um, That's an easier uh, fit. The other thing is that we base a lot of our work on risk and protective factor theory of uh, Hawkins and Catalano. And it amazes me how many treatment folks are not familiar with that. And yet, when you look at an individual that you're counseling, if you did identify their most significant risk factors and their most significant protective factors, and you work on enhancing those protective factors. And you know that's what we call recovery capital in the recovery community.. Right. Yep. So we keep you know we need to keep um, that cross language um, conversation and being in treatment people need to be part of coalitions as well as recovery folks, but we also need to be in those arenas as well.
0: And i think that that's important and and i i to kind of throw some positivity on our sponsor for this mountainside one thing that they do that i saw which fascinated me and i thought was brilliant was taking clients alumni and their family on a trip to the new york botanical gardens to get a tour of things and what jumped out at me was um not only the information and things and, and getting out in a beautiful area but this is an activity which enhances recovery because it treats the individual like a grown-up instead of saying we're all going to get in a van and go bowling we're all going to it's it's really an a, a important activity and a great thing to bring the families which in itself is uh, serves a prevention role by saying look at these great things that we can do um without involving alcohol and drugs that there's so much life to be lived and that that and That positivity, that protective factor is so important in preventing future use.
2: And that is an evidence-based protective factor, family bonding, community bonding. So you can justify activities like that, family-based activities in the research. So um, I'm bring us back to the fact that everything we do, we know that if we foster those connections, number one, that's primary prevention, but it also enhances the the likelihood of a continuing recovery, because <laughs> we're building a protective factor, you know, yeah. and reconnecting families,
1: Scott. I mean, I think another, another thing to think about, too, in terms of prevention, treatment and recovery is, is we, if we have well funded, scaled up prevention programs in our communities that in a way increases access for treatment and recovery because it lessens the demand. And If I draw a parallel to COVID right now, how we're dealing with the pandemic, if we were not vaccinating, if if our if we were relying on ICUs in hospitals to solve the issue with COVID, they would I mean obviously parts of our country are still are are overrun in their ICUs, but we didn't if we weren't doing vaccinations, we'd be in a much worse place mm. in terms of the, the, the demand and need for ICUs and, 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 and treatment. So I, I think we can look at it the same way when we're looking at addiction, is if we have well Funded, scaled up prevention programs in our communities. That's gonna. That's gonna be less. Again, if we do it right, less demand uh, for for treatment recovery. So I think that's another way we can kind of break down the silos. Is all work together. Get we have better. Um, you know, again, robust prevention in, in our states and our communities. That's gonna help all parts of the continuum um, and and in in our citizens having access to the the, the, the services they need.
0: And i think based on what you're describing um not only would it reduce demand but it it also allows the treatment professionals to kind of get involved at earlier stages right and when it's yeah. rather than waiting till it becomes uh, a a disorder that it's on the spectrum we can address to things earlier and put less of a bear a, a burden on the system so it just totally. i think it really needs to kind of work better together and and i've seen some improvement in that but we've got a ways to go but we understand that it's the longitudinal aspect of change in the right. field uh, going with that, um, another issue that that I think that should be addressed, and I and I address this with, with Dr. Aaron Reiner in a previous podcast, that the substance use disorder field is always looking for immediate impact. Always, you know, it's, we need to do that. We want to feed our need for immediate gratification by seeing these things happen. But community change, effective community change takes time. You know, we're talking about five to 10 years of a concentrated focus. How can you help people in the field realize the need for patients?
2: That's a tough one. But I think um, one of the things that I teach, and I know Scott does too, is um, it, it is important when you're working with human beings in coalitions and in community, that they do see results. So I always say, begin with something that's doable, and that takes a short amount of time so people can see some success. Something don't, you have long term activities and outcomes, and then you can begin with some short term um, things that have impact. In addition, I think when you identify the risk factors and the protective factors, what you can report on and show people is the um, impact on those. So in other words, less access to alcohol by um, underage drinkers or a better um, policy around um, uh, vaping. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a short-term outcome because the goal would be reduced vaping use, for example, or reducing um, uh, alcohol or marijuana use. So when people see that, um, see those short-term outcomes, they're more likely to stay on board with you. And one of the things I think we need to do better is you know, really be very specific and frequent about our conversations around those short-term outcomes and then explain how they will impact the long-term outcome that's gonna come further up the road. So
0: yeah. the idea of benchmarks is very important along the road. Yes.
1: yes. And that's where, I mean, One thing we love in prevention is logic models and logic models is really a great way to to really like literally map that out. So, you know, what are your inputs, what are your risk factors, your sort of intermediate variables you're trying to impact and then your ultimate goal of reducing substance use. So I think that's where, you know, again, through PTTC and other entities, we try to train the field on making sure they don't understand how to do a good logic model, the data that they're going to collect to track that and then how to communicate that to the coalition, you know, their, their board members, whoever you know, whoever has a role, to understand like here's here's our map, here's our path, and here's how we know we're on the right path. Um, so that's definitely, and you know, that's part of the part of the work as a prevention is and, and that that communication piece is keeping everyone engaged. And so I think when you do that from the beginning, you set that map that, and make sure everyone understands the map. Um, that that has a lot to do with um, I mean we and in where I worked in Anderson County, we had a underage drinking initiative. It was like over 10 years, we saw results and everyone understood that. And part of it was that good logic model, like here's, here's how we know we're being successful. And then at the end, you can kind of look back and like, oh yeah, this worked. We said it was gonna work and it worked. And I'm I'm assuming
0: that there's, many different ways that all of those benchmarks come into play and how they're tracked and who is responsible for them so um, we're seeing a lot of, of information coming out about impaired driving with marijuana laws changing and things so if the overall result was to reduce impaired driving by 50 percent putting spot checks put, things like that are really for law enforcement, I know it's about arrest and things, but for, for Nitsa or whoever may be funding that, it really is a prevention effort by letting people know hey, there's in the paper, hey, there's going to be a spot check, whatever. I know there are ways people find ways around that, but it's letting people know that we're paying attention to this and the community recognizes that, or sending um adult, you know, older adolescents into liquor stores to try to purchase and saying, Hey, this person is selling uh liquor to minors, we need to address that right away. Those are the things I think communities notice as well.
1: Well, and that goes towards setting community norms, which is one of those protective factors. So and that's that was what the success we saw in the under County is putting out those kind of notifications and in in letting the community know that this was a serious issue that we were concerned about. And this is why we're doing uh, these things. So those those things again, they, they seem like individually, they seem kind of innocuous, but in total, they're part of an overall plan to impact those community norms, which then will impact the underage drinking rates. Um,
0: In prior addition. to the interview, I, I tried to familiarize myself with the strategic prevention uh, framework, and a couple of things jumped out at me that uh, I'd like to address. And, One of the things that I find incredibly important about it is the framework itself is a very simple to follow model. It doesn't mean easy, it doesn't mean there aren't complex things within, but the model itself is simple. And simple doesn't mean ineffective. In most cases, simple means really darn effective.
2: (laughs) Right, actually there's so many pieces to it, but when it first came out, I remember people saying, oh, this is the flavor of the day. And I have been doing strategic planning with nonprofits for a a long period of time. And I said, no, this is strategic planning applied to our prevention work. And I tell people the history on this. We had a grant called the State Incentive Grant. Everybody got money. We were given a laundry list of evidence-based programs, and we were told we had to implement them in six months. The grant was five years long. And our focus was underage drinking. And guess what? There was no change. No change. So there were a couple of people at SAMHSA, um, both of whom are not there anymore, stepped back and said, well, what do we do wrong? And they said, you know, we didn't allow people time to plan. We didn't have them do a needs assessment. They did. We didn't give them time to build the capacity in the community to do the work. We didn't give them time to do a good plan and a logic model and then the implementation is the fourth step number four i mean there's a lot to do and then they said it you need to spend a whole year of your five-year project on the needs assessment and the communities were like no 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 we've got to get going And we said no you need to take a step back and figure this out and do it logically and guess what after those five years we had a significant decrease in underage drinking and in the other priorities that certain states that like like uh, Massachusetts was the only state in the United States that focused on opioid misuse way back before we were calling it an epidemic. But they were able to document a significant change as well. But it was all because of that um, uh, use of that strategic prevention framework. And there's been research done comparing communities that used we call it the spiff used the spiff faithfully and those that did not those that did had much better outcomes than those that that did a poor job of implementing and for me one of the big pieces too and I've got to say this is capacity building you know building the capacity of the community to do the work themselves and so you know I say my job is a facilitator that is to help people make it easier, walk them through the process, give them the, the information and the skills that they need. And then, when that task force or coalition starts using language like we instead of you or they, then we know they own it. And then we can step back if the funding disappears or is reduced, and the community will own it. You know, the schools or the community centers will keep keep at what we're doing, the policies are in place and they're not gonna change, you know, like a a social host policy. Um, So that is imperative, you know, that we're not doing, um, being patronizing, we're not, we're teaching people how to fish. That's what we're doing. A good prevention um, provider is teaching people how to fish.
0: You're warming my heart because you're bringing me back to my social work, education and community organizing. And these are really community organizing techniques and you can't just throw these things out there and, and, make them happen you've really got a plan and you've got to know every little aspect you can to make it work you know when I tell people in community organizing that I could take an auditorium and with five or six people on my side I can get everybody on my side because it was a technique but you've got to figure out a lot of things for that to happen it just well I'm going to sit you here and here I mean it's a real uh uh, whole thing and I'm a rules for radicals kind of guy too so (laughs)
2: <laughs> and you've got to figure all that out before you walk into that auditorium.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
0: So and you've so got to figure out plan A, B, and C for when the first one doesn't work.
1: Exactly. Well, and I think I think the kind of the beauty of the simplicity and the longevity of the SPF, I mean, I learned the SPF when I started 15, 16 years ago, whatever, whatever it was. But it's it's endured, like that model's endured. But the, the, the beauty of that is it's allow us, it allows us to infuse other things into that system. So, like right now, you know, we're, there's a lot of intent focused on weaving in more diversity, equity, inclusion into our work. And so we can use the SPF to do that. We can think about how do we weave that into each part of the strategic prevention framework. Like, the you're, as a prevention professional, you're trained on the SPF day one, you understand that. Now, how do I do it in a way that focuses on this issue? When I do my trainings on cannabis policy and prevention, it's the same thing. How do I weave cannabis policy literacy into the SPF? So it's it's like the muscle, this is how we do prevention. You get that muscle memory of how you do prevention. Then you can do some more targeted workouts on how how do I target this muscle? How do I target that muscle? How do I weave other things into it? So I think that's just, I think the genius of that model. And again, the endurance of it is it allows us to continuously enhance the capacity of our workforce.
2: But one of the just, one of the um, one of the, the developers of this fifth model, Mike was since passed away, said three things. And I usually incorporate this in a number of my trainees. First, he said local people solve local problems best. Then he said people support what they help create. And finally, he said research matters do what works. And that sort of summarizes the I think the approach that we use. Um, and um, uh, community-based-based based work, so just wanted to put that in there.
0: Important words, obviously, and just just kind of in the last you know ten minutes or so, just a few questions that one more general and a couple uh, targeted. But when we use the old adage, if you prioritize everything, you prioritize nothing. What are the current true priorities of the field right now? in this current moment? I know that that, that's kind of a loaded question, but.
2: Well, I mean, right now, you know, because of the opioid epidemic, that is a priority. Um, Underage drinking and underage um, marijuana use, I think um, is another national priority. Um, Scott, would you add to that?
1: Yeah, I I agree with those. I think as a field, I think of workforce development, we have a couple of priorities. Um, One is uh, workforce diversity, I think, is is an area we can always uh, improve on. When I I was on the National Advisory Council, we did a project that was looking at some workforce development issues, and through some research, this is probably not too surprising, we don't have a particularly diverse uh, workforce. Um, And so I think that's an area that we can continuously improve on. I know the PTTC network in uh and other stakeholders we're looking at um the other one is workforce retention i think um getting more young people interested in the field of prevention and then retaining them um i mean in my state of maine we seem to have a, a this kind of bifurcated uh, workforce very um experienced people let's say in the field and then some very new people like sort of the middle is kind of kind of missing there so i think that's a, a place where as a workforce and as a field we can we need to invest some, you uh, got to figure out how do we get more people in the field and then keep them, keep them in the field. It's tough because, you know, it's grant funded. So there's three, five year funding cycles, but I think, you know, there's probably approaches we can employ to, to get people really, because when you're really invested in the field and emotionally and, and in a lot of different ways, you, I mean, that's how I got sucked into the field. I was not, it was not my uh, career plan, but I found my way into it and I've never left. So how do we, how do we scale that up to, build that capacity one of
0: the things i am seeing are some younger people entering the field and at least in my state uh and through the credentialing process what i'm seeing is they're working for towns right they they may be you know there are some working for coalitions there may be some uh, working on drug-free community grants but there are some that work in the youth services bureaus of 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 towns. so we're seeing some younger people um get in but when you talk about workforce, and I mentioned credentialing, uh, and Sandra, this goes right to, to one of your areas, expertises, I see prevention credentialing in certain parts of the country, I can't speak for the whole thing, is that it's it's undervalued. Given your expertise in this area, how do we inform people of the importance of credentialing to, to ensure public protection? I
2: think we're, we're working really hard on that and, and making an effort um, to do presentations everywhere. And this is mm-hmm. this has been a lifelong um, frustration for me because we certify people in recovery and require it. We certified and licensed people in treatment and we require it. And yet there are states that will say, oh no, we don't need certification. We're not going to require it. So what if there's a carrot and a stick approach. One, the carrot is, you know, you get the that credential and you get those initials after your name. But you know, it can be an expensive process and we need um the states like mine. It took me a while, and I, you know, I led the charge in terms of including it in the contract that when within, within two years, if you're receiving state funds, you have to be certified um, using the ICNRC prevention specialist certification. Um, so we have about one-third of our states now that are requiring that people be certified in order to do the prevention work. Um, we're working um, more closely, the ICNRC, with the NPN. We have an NPN uh, representative that attends our meetings when we have the, you know, face-to-face. Um, and actually, one of the people who came, she came dubious, and she actually did um, a, a training for MPN with us last week on um, the importance of certification. We won a rover. So uh, and she's she's making that change in her own state. So I think it's I think we need that stick. We need to require certification and not assume that just anybody can do this kind of work. We've, talked about it just now about how complicated it is and how many skill sets you need to do the work well Um, to assume that someone can come in from another arena and just just do it without the appropriate training and supervision and experience is really a disservice to the community
0: I know i know legislators don't like the term that i used and got me kind of shut out of the public health committee at our state legislature i said if you don't do these things really what you're doing is subor- you know suborning malpractice you're telling people it's okay to do the wrong thing because you're not telling them they have to do the right thing exactly. and, and i asked that question because in my 10 years of, of icnrc work the prevention uh, credentialing committee has been one of the most busiest consistently updating and making sure things are accurate and current with what's going on, checking with all other boards to see what their standards are to make sure that we're we're presenting it as a unified front and a and a standard that needs to be followed. But I I I do see the struggle to get that in the community. And you've really just answered why and, and I, I have seen that here written into grants, but if the if the state doesn't have the resources to follow up you know, to have the stick,
2: yeah.
0: it isn't going to work. I remember there was a, co- a co-occurring grant, the COSIG grant so many years ago, they did all this co-occurring training and we're going to implement things, but they never did the follow-up to implement. And so mm-hmm. people let things lapse and that's why we don't offer the co-occurring credential anymore <laughs> at So yeah. We don't need to, we tied it into another. Um, I, I, I think that that's an interesting thing to talk about the carrot and the stick and I see the importance of it. Um, and i'd like to see something like that happen in my state
2: and that also involves uh, the state allowing a line item for training for their staff and in my state they can even pay for the initial certification out of out of their grant so uh, because our prevention people aren't paid that well um so it it's important that you provide them with um, the financial, opportunity to do that as well as the time. So um, it, it's, it's critical uh, that we make that happen. And so our uh, certification boards have to get into the arena in terms of advocating. And that's a slow process, if it's anything like what happened in my state. It, it took me almost single-handedly a long time to get that written into the contract in terms of convincing people. And I would say, you know, nail technicians, plumbers, hairstylists all have to be certified. Uh, w- what are you saying about prevention if you're saying, oh, well, that's really not needed or it's too expensive for people or, you know, some other argument, which I consider pretty specious?
0: I, I was at the Addiction Policy Forum leadership. Conference a couple of years ago, sitting at a table with a physician, an emergency physician from Yale, who had developed and worked on some best practices for uh, in the emergency room and post discharge for individuals with opioid use disorders. And he was on the board that uh, certified, you know, for certified emergency physicians. And he said, We ask so much more of others than we're willing to do for ourselves, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll say, oh, I only want this person to be best trained, but are we bit willing to be the best trained? And I think yeah. that's an issue that we, we kind of have to work with. And then speaking of training, and Scott, this goes directly to you, is training and continued exposure to new information is paramount to keep knowledge, skills, and abilities up to date. Um, can you talk about the role of the New England Prevention Technology Transfer Center you know, and the entire PTTC network in professional development?
1: Sure, yeah. So, uh, so our New England Prevention Technology Transfer Center is one of 10 regional PTTCs, as we call them, funded by SAMHSA. So we're, you know, we're based at Ed Care Educational Institute of Maine, and we're serving Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. So you got them all. (laughs) Um, And so our role really is, uh, it's training and technical assistance to basically make sure that the prevention science is getting into service, into implementation. So it's really providing um, what those skills, building that capacity to implement evidence-based prevention. And the way we do our work is you know, we we walk the we walk the talk. We use the SPF, We do a needs assessment, um, which we do about every two years. We're actually just wrapping up one currently, to assess from what the workforce, the prevention workforce in our region needs. Um, so we do that through a survey. Um, we also do it through some key informant interviews and, and some other other methods. Methods. We have an advisory council that Sandra sits on, um, with representatives from all the five other states helps we meet quarterly to advise us on what the, what the on the ground needs are. So it's all informed by science, but it's also informed by the regional needs. And that's the beauty of this network is with, with these ten regional centers, it's not just one, one plan for training in, uh, across the whole country. We get to regionalize and, and adapt it to what, what is needed. Um, the other thing about the network is each of the centers has a specialty training area uh, so in our region, we identified cannabis prevention as one, and that was kind of some tea leave, uh, tea leave reading when we were submitting the application. At the time, Maine and Massachusetts were the only legalized states, but we kind of had a sense that there were going to be more. Um, and that's just a you know, specialty area of mine personally and then our our organization. So we do a lot of training in that area. Uh, we also do a lot of focus on leadership development, knowing that the, you know, experienced folks in our field also need support through advanced training, but also through some best practices on how they can support their staff. Um, so we do that through some a mentoring programs. Uh, we partner with the New England ATTC on their leadership development program, which works across the continuum um, of services. Um, the other thing I think that's really great about our network is we get to leverage expertise across the country. So I'm often getting asked by other centers, you know, they're picking my brain about cannabis prevention stuff. If I want to do harm reduction, overdose prevention, I'm going to go to the Great Lakes PTTC. Um, you know so it's, it's a great uh, way to spread knowledge um, throughout throughout our network. So um, and the other, the other great thing about this model is anyone can access it. It's the, you know the previous CAPS model was really good, but the, the trick was you had to go through the state, to access, you know, sort of the training. This is open to anyone in the field to access our services to make requests. So it's it's a really great model, and um, I think we're seeing a lot of great uh, success with that. We're really proud to be uh, serving the New England region uh, with our with our center.
2: And Scott won't brag, but I will tell you, because I work around the country, that the New England PTTC is one of the most active um, PTTCs in the country, and a place where other folks um, turn to for innovation. So kudos to Scott and his team.
1: Well, and I do, just quickly on that point, I do have to point, one of the things that drives our PTTC is innovation. So everything is evidence and science-based. We're always looking for different ways. So we're not just doing the standard Zoom webinar and slides all the time. So sometimes we'll do interviews with researchers, we'll do we have a prevention and action series where we focus a success story in New England that we want to replicate in other parts of the region. So that's something we really take a certain amount of pride in, is try to find innovative ways uh, to train and, and do technical assistance to. Because we know everyone doesn't learn the same way, so that's something we really put a lot of focus on. You
0: well, know that we that I've been lucky enough to to represent New England and some national ATTC stuff. I've worked on. Uh, 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 technology-based clinical supervision uh, with the former uh, NFAR, uh, the rural ATTC, and, and bringing that information back and train it here in New England. And so I think that those networks really do work well. And I think I'd like to see, and hopefully that we can do that today by people listening, get people to access information about the uh, New England PTTC. Before we finish up, anything that I missed, anything you'd like to share?
1: Well, I'll, I'll first plug, if you do, do you want information, ptcnetwork.org slash New England is where you can find out. I'll make sure I make that available um, to About us. And then I guess this thing I would throw out for, for listeners who may not be in the prevention field, I guess maybe a little bit of a, a challenge is to look for the prevention coalition in your community, um, just to be aware of what they're doing. If you're in treatment recovery, it's a great opportunity to collaborate and be connected. And maybe they have an opening on their board or their coalition. So I would definitely encourage folks listening who aren't in the prevention space to kind of look up their local prevention coalition and find out how they can get involved. Awesome. Thank you. Come
0: on, Sandra. I know you got something. I've known you a Uh, long time. I
2: would would just (laughs) add to what Scott said in terms of um, when you, uh, I would build on that. So think about, find that local coalition. And not only there's a give and a get, you know, I talk about when I do community organizing. Um, Yes, there's, whatever whatever um lens you have that's what you're going to give to the group but i can promise you that you will get something out of it not only personally but professionally as well so um i think as a facilitator one of my tasks is is not only to identify what a particular you know group or sector can bring to the table but also um you know the benefits, and a lot of that is around networking and collaboration. That's that's a big um, deal for us. We don't we don't work in, in we, you talked about silos. We don't work in silos. We we work around the uh, around the field. One of the most interesting um, things that I heard it was one of our New England states where they had the water resources board on their coalition. Well, think about it. What, how do people dispose of their medications, right? So they got funding from the Water Resources Board, and they did some joint projects. So look for those um, um, out of the box kind of partners, um, and and uh, and include. And and you might be one of those out of the box partners. And so um, find that coalition or task force. And the other thing we're really working on now, I think, is health equity. Um, it's a national initiative in terms of making sure that not only are we serving those populations most in need, but we're also finding creative ways to get them to the table, so that they are um, they know their communities best, so that they're part of the solution and not seen as, as the problem.
0: Think globally, but act locally is is one of the messages in there. I want to thank both of you for spending this time with me this morning. Uh, It was very informational, taught me um, things that I certainly was not aware of. And now that I'm more curious about, I'm going to look into more. Um, And again, thanks for spending the time and and taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to share with us. Thank
2: Thank you you for the opportunity. Thank you. That's going to do it
0: for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to, again, thank both Sandra and Scott for taking the time to join us. We again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. And we here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody.